the entire plan came to me in an instant uh, on my bike. And I, I pulled over to the side of the road and I called my wife and I said, this is what I need to do. And she said, okay, well, don't tell your boss that yet. Please don't quit today. Welcome to season three, episode three of the Nets Your Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and I'm working to share the lessons, philosophies, and actions from leaders working in climate so you can live a sustainable life that brings the world closer to net zero emissions. On the show today is Rob Gramlich. Rob is the founder and president of Grid Strategies, where he provides economic policy analysis for clients on electric transmission and power markets in pursuit of low-cost decarbonization. What does that mean? Well, we get into it in very much detail, but think about it like this. The individual action you could do is to put solar on your rooftop and then you will have clean energy. But as a collective, if we have an entire clean energy grid, then no one individual has to purchase solar. Then everyone gets it, right? More progressive, less regressive. Anyways, back to Rob. He's also the executive director for the Americans for a Clean Energy Grid and the Working for Advanced Transmission Technologies, Watt Coalition not to be confused with the Watt Time and our previous guest, Gavin McCormick. Previously, Rob oversaw transmission and power market policy for the American Wind Energy Association from 2005 to 2016 as Senior Vice President for Government and Public Affairs, Interim CEO, and Policy Director. He was an economic advisor to the FERC Chairman, Pat Wood III, from 2001 to 2005. If you don't know what FERC is, don't worry, we get into it. P.S. It's very important. He was a senior economist at PJM Interconnection in 1999 and 2000. He testified before the U.S. Congress at the invitation of both parties back when it was, you know, nonpartisan was a thing, as well as the U.S. Federal Energy Regulation Commission, FERC. Rob has a master's of public policy from UC Berkeley and a BA with honors in economics from Colby College. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Hey, great to be with you, Nathan. Yeah. So... I thought the place that we could kick off is John Dingle and your aunt and kind of the origins of your carbon consciousness. Sure. Well, my, my family, my aunt Robin and my father and my sister, I remember as a kid having debates about acid rain, which was a hot issue uh, in those years. And um, my aunt Robin knew about Washington and she knew that my our congressman was John Dingle, who is chair of the House Energy and Commerce Commission uh, Committee, very uh, powerful man and uh, representing the uh, southeastern Michigan where the auto companies are. Uh, he was not exactly a friend of um, uh, air regulations. Uh, so I, I was uh, I did a science project on acid rain. And I did take the, these pictures of like dead trees that were just, it was just winter. They were, they were live trees. They were just fine, <laughs> but they looked bad. Um, and oh, I great. wrote this report in seventh grade. Uh, and so she, Aunt Robin, encouraged me to send it in to the congressman, which uh, I then did. So that was my first act of uh, public policy advocacy, um, which, of course, I'm sure nobody read. And I, I don't remember if I got a letter back or, or anything, but it was uh, you know, definitely memorable to me because here I am, however many years later. And just for clarity, where are you based at this time? And you said you're in about seventh grade. Yeah, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, now and since basically about since college, I've lived in the Washington, D.C. area, Bethesda, Maryland. 
And what got you interested in that in the first place? Um, and then, you know, I, I'm not going to ask you to say what time period this was, but how do you, did you mail that physical copy of the report to oh, yeah. oh, his yeah. office? It, it was handwritten uh, on, with my horrible handwriting uh, and just stuck in an envelope and mailed into his office. I love it. And so, but how did you get interested in the topic in the first place? Like what inspired you to write that report? Well, I mean, there is an environmental ethic that I inherited in my family and I was interested, you know, I like the outdoors and, and all that. I also had grew up, I had asthma uh, as a kid and it was really annoying because I loved sports more than anything. And I would start wheezing after a while, especially if it was cold out. And, um, you know, I sort of knew vaguely that there were coal plants nearby and that the air pollution from the power plants were not good for people that, with asthma. And it was a little, you know, it was on my mind um, as something to sort of be concerned about when I started, you know, getting to the point where I paid some attention to the outside world beyond my little neighborhood. Got it. Okay. And so if we fast forward, so your bio says, and correct me if I get anything wrong, because I got this all from the internet and you know, the internet's a gen- dangerous place, but um, somewhere on the internet, your bio says he, he being you testifies frequently before the U S Congress, federal energy regulation commission, U S department of energy, state legislators, legislators and regulatory commissions. Did, uh, did you ever get to meet John Dingle or like a person who knew him and ask him about the report? Oh boy. No, I never did. Um, of course, his wife is uh, still still there and active, but um, no, I never uh, never did. He uh, retired before I started doing much. There was a period of my career where I was doing lobbying, actual lobbying on the Hill, um, and I would go around and you know meet people like that and have lunches and dinners and fundraisers and, and things. But he wasn't uh, he wasn't around at that time. Okay, great. So let's let's dive into what I understand to be one of your favorite topics, uh, self-described grid geek. Let's talk about the grid, and in particular, um, I've heard you say a few things that I'd love for you to cover. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a lot at you, so take what kind of is interesting here. Um, but one of the things I think is interesting quote is you said that the current grid is not set up as it's a poor match for our future needs. And so if we unpack that a little bit, first of all, when you say grid, do you like um, in your mind is that the physical infrastructure? Is it the existing economic players and incentives, current government policies? Like how do you wrap that into the grid itself? And then while you're thinking, I'll just add. Um, for listeners who want to kind of get a general understanding of the history of the grid, The Last Days of Night is one of my favorite books of all time and talks about, um, it's a historical fiction of Edison versus Tesla and Westinghouse. So, um, you know, if you want to throw in the history there too, because it's so fascinating, feel free. Yeah, well, right. Back in, in those days, uh, Edison and then his, uh, his sidekick, Samuel Insull, went off and developed the first electric utility, which was when the uh, system became a network of multiple generators connected by transmission lines to consumers to load. Uh, and Samuel uh, Insull in, invented this idea of the monopoly and the economics profession, whether they really had much influence then or not, they sort of had this theory of natural monopoly where actually the more efficient way to do it instead of having multiple lines run down the street is let's have one company do the whole deal and we'll regulate them. So we'll make sure that prices, since they are given a franchise monopoly, we'll make sure their prices don't get to monopolistic 
prices or profits, but are at the, you know, just the level required to recover their capital. So that basically is the structure of the electric industry. Um, but what it did was it, it was built up around all these localities, cities. So there's like, there, there are hundreds of these utilities that are vertically integrated, meaning they do soup to nuts in their area, which is generation, transmission, and distribution to serve customers. And they do it in these little vertical silos. So uh, that's the structure we've inherited and largely is intact today, 100 years later. Uh, but the structure that I and many others think we need more of in the future for the clean energy system uh, to have a reliable and carbon-free uh, power grid uh, is a lot more horizontal connections between these utilities so that you're moving power geographically uh, back and forth across areas. You know, most people understand that there are remote areas with really cheap land where you can build big wind and solar projects. And they also have very strong, you know, sometimes really windy areas. Um, and that happens both on kind of a micro level, like, you know, upstate New York to downstate New York, the people are downstate and the, you know, big, projects could be upstate, but it's also on a more macro level uh, where I think the 15 states between the Rockies and the Mississippi have about 90% of our resource potential. And we could sort of connect all that and that'd be this vast sort of supply source for the whole country. So that's a whole lot of transmission lines that you need to, to make all of that work. And that's, you know, we have, we do have ways to, um, recover costs of in, uh, transmission lines for those lo little local systems, but we don't really have any system of recovering the costs for the interstate highway type lines that go long distances. So we've been doing a lot of work to, to try to rectify that. So if we go back in time and kind of look at your career in terms of how you're, you're building up this understanding of the grid, you go to FERC, I think, helping understand who the players are for people who are unfamiliar to the grid. Like if I'm a software engineer and I'm working for Facebook and I decide, hey, you know what? It turns out like I really love electricity. I want to spend time figuring out how to get to zero carbon energy for everyone. Who do I need to go to and where can I apply my skill set to then help get bring zero carbon energy to the grid faster? Sure. Well, first of all, a lot of companies, including Facebook, uh, have to buy a lot of clean energy. Uh, and so they have internal shops that are very good and uh, doing a lot of that. So that, that's one thing. But um, more broadly in the power sector, the electric utilities really are the major entities who you know own the transmission system and do a lot of the investment. Uh, and I mean, it used to be a lot of people like me who have been kind of trying to do environmental policy for years, you know, have had many fights with utilities and still, I mean, I'm, my firm is usually an intervener in the, in their cases, meaning we're often opposing the utilities, but you know, these days, almost every utility has major decarbonization goals and they are really looking for help on how to do that. It's not easy to do. Uh, it's not like they just say, okay, fine, we'll do it and flip the switch. It's, you know, there's a lot of work to do and they need talented people. So I would say many or most, if not all utilities would be interest, interesting places to work these days. Um, there's also these kind of grid operator type organizations called regional transmission organizations. They're like air traffic controllers of the large scale grid across many states. 
they're very interesting. And then there's a lot of regulatory agencies, both state and federal, that are doing a lot of interesting work. Um, and then the independent power sector is a big sector for actual development of wind, solar, storage, transmission projects. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of different uh, different types of companies. And of course, they all need analytics. You know, there's, you know, consulting firms and uh, modeling firms and there's national labs and Department of Energy supporting R&D. So there's, there's, there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of ways to get into it. And when you say independent power, power players, which I say that 10 times fast, how do they connect back? I mean, no pun intended, but how do they connect back to the utilities? Yeah, well, that was a whole new sector that was really started by legislation in, well, beginning sort of 1978 with the so-called PURPA law, uh, and then 1992 with the, there's an Energy Policy Act then, all of which was intended to sort of promote competition at the generation state of the industry. So transmission and distribution are still largely monopoly utility controlled, but the uh, generators, just building a power plant, that that is structurally competitive, right? So you, you could have many players. You don't have to have one monopoly entity do that part of the industry. So um, different states have chosen to um, either further that or, or just stick with the old system. So it varies. But in a lot of states, there are most of the generation is owned by independent entities, which is just any company that wants to get in and invest in generation. Um, there's been some consolidation, so there aren't, you know, there aren't hundreds out there, but um, there are some, some big, uh, big players, uh, but a, a pretty diverse group of companies that are just in the business of developing power plants and selling the power. And I want to jump in just uh, to the point you made about utilities having decarbonization goals, and it's not easy to do that. And we'll kind of talk there when we talk about you starting um, leaving OEA and starting Chris Strategies. But if we think just a little bit higher level beforehand, in terms of like 100% zero carbon energy, there's like a few problems to solve to get there. I've heard you mention this framework of part of those problems are moving energy across time. And we have some opportunities to do that and moving it across geographies. And there's some opportunities to do that as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts and frameworks about, you know, what are their solutions and kind of what's most important right now and, and where do we go from here? Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, the physics people like to think of it that way. We can, we can move power <laughs> over time in space. We really need to do both. And we do have battery storage now that's, that's coming on. Uh, and it's a lot cheaper than it was 10 years ago. It's like fallen in cost by 90%, but it's still, it's still fairly expensive and, and, and limited in terms of, you know, the batteries that are used might last four hours or something. It's like, you know, it's like you're driving your Chevy Bolt or your Tesla or something, you know, you'll, you'll run out of juice after four hours. Um, but, uh, you know, so what do you do for longer periods of time? How do you get all the way through the night, for example? So, you know, that's one reason why we need to move power across geographies. And you know, another reason is just the uh, the diversity of the output. Like if it's, if a wind farm is blowing, you know, at full output, you know, right here where we sit, the what tends to happen is the wind farm that's a few hundred miles away is probably not producing at that time. Like they're, they're basically uncorrelated in their output. So what you do for a high renewable penetration grid is you connect up the resources in all the different places. Uh, and it might be cloudy in one place or sunny in another, but if you have a, a geographically broad enough 
grid, then all of that sort of balances it out. Just, you know, just like load balances each other out. Like if you turn your lights on, I might be turning mine off and the whole system, you know, doesn't have to provide for the, everybody's maximum output. It just kind of looks at the net. Uh, you know, need. And so that's what you can do with a renewable energy grid. So that's why, you know, yes, we'll have a lot of storage um, and that's, um, that's great. And uh, clean energy advocates like me do a lot of work on storage, but, you know, transmission is also important to move, move the power across space. And so now if we jump into the grid, I guess I'm curious, one, why you chose to focus on the grid after your time in FERC and OEA. And I think kind of giving a background on who FERC is and, and who um, OEA are as well is helpful. Um, but in particular, I'm kind of curious if you read Ashley Vance's book about Elon Musk. He talks, They talk about SpaceX and the Merlin engine, and they're trying to make the, the rocket for the first time. And um, they're describing it as like the engine group is in the bullseye of Elon Musk. And then, and every, so everyone else is like, all the other engineering teams are like, oh, like, hey, we've got time, we've got time, it's okay. And then, and then they're not. And then, like, the engine figures it out. And all the other teams are like, oh, shit, like, we have to get this together. Is that where we are today, where we're kind of like, hey, there's hundreds of projects ready to go? Like, the clean energy is there. It's just we have to solve those other engineering problems to get them online. I think that's right. I think we are at a moment where suddenly the grid is the constraint. Uh, I really think it. It is the biggest constraint to clean energy and decarbonization for the country and really for most countries, because most countries are basically at the same phase with a big opportunity to deploy a lot of wind and solar. That's the cheapest way to decarbonize in, you know, uh, on a large scale in a fast amount of time and at relatively low cost. But the problem with wind and solar is you uh, the best sites are remote from load. And also this, we've talked about how you got to move the power back and forth and diversify with the different resource areas. So any, any high renewable energy grid, you look around the world, you know, Ireland connecting to, you know, neighboring countries with transmission, you know, the hydro-based systems in South America and Africa, using some balancing resource like like hydro and having all the resources connected with transmission is how they're doing it. China's building massive transmission lines uh, across the country uh, and, and they're, you know, growing their clean energy dramatically. So that's just how it works. That's how so many countries around the world are, are doing it. Uh, it's not like this hasn't been known by basically all my friends. A lot, a lot <laughs> of people have been following this. I mean, I've been working on it for 30 years um, sort of discovered the issue in, in a college um, senior thesis. Uh, I did have the uh, experience personally of um, working for the FERC chairman, Pat Wood, great guy from 2001 to 2005, at the time when the wind industry basically said, we're ready to take off, but our big problem is transmission. And so I was sitting there, you know, working for the chairman of, the, of FERC, the agency in charge of transmission nationally, um, uh, and I said, well, that's fascinating. And that sounds really important. And so, um, at the time when, um, his term was ending and I was going to, you know, either look for another job in the agency or something else, I decided to talk to the wind industry and I, I went and became their, uh, the policy director for the American wind energy association in 2005. At that time, there were four gigawatts of wind energy deployed in the country. Uh, right now, I should know the number, but it's, it's over 120. I mean, it's gone, you know, 30 or 40 fold increase uh, since, since then. So it really was just like just beginning to take off, but 
um, you know, we had these developers who were trying to build and they were like, the first thing we did was a whole bunch of developers are trying to build big projects in West Texas. It turned out all the farmers and ranchers in West Texas loved it. They were super conservative people. Um, but the, you know, the Austin liberals and the West Texas conservatives got together in the legislature uh, and they said, and this was, we were sort of involved from an advocacy standpoint. And they said, well, you know, let's do some renewable energy goals uh, and, uh, and put some transmission policies in there too, to build the transmission out to where the wind farms want to be. Uh, and that, uh, you know, that was done. Competitive renewable energy zones was the name of the policy. And it's still to this day kind of stands as like the great model of how to do transmission and renewable energy. Right. So, you know, that was sort of a formative experience. And then really since then, that was 2006, seven, we've been, trying to do that all around the country. We did it in the upper Midwest, the lower plains in California. Um, we being a whole lot of people and I was involved in most of those efforts. So when does your time end in OIA and then going to starting to the grid strategies and again, tying that back, is that because, is there a relation to the fact that like, hey, you know, you want to help bring the world closer to net zero. The fastest way to do that is to unlock the grid. Yeah, I, you know, I've always thought that transmission was the biggest challenge to um, large scale deployment. And I, you know, I sort of, I wrote the um, transmission chapter of the, the department of energy, 20% wind by 2030 report, which by the way, we wrote in 2007 and we're exactly on track. We've been following that projected trajectory um, right, right exactly as we uh, predicted along with DOE and the National Renewable Energy Lab. Uh, and I sort of wrote the piece about, you know, how do you build the transmission? Who does it? How, what are the policies and that sort of thing? Um, so, you know, that's what we've been doing. And uh, I did a lot of that for my perch at the American Wind Energy Association. Great, you know, group of companies and people. We hit an inflection point in 2016, which I'm sure you and your listeners remember the year in November 2016. And I'll just say that three days after the election, I was riding my bike to work and it just struck me out of the blue, out of nowhere, that after 12 years at AWEA, what I needed to do was quit and start my own consulting firm uh, called Grid Strategies. Like the whole thing came to me, the entire plan came to me in an instant uh, on my bike. And I, I pulled over to the side of the road and I called my wife and I said, this is what I need to do. And she said, okay, well, don't tell your boss that yet. Please don't quit today. Let's give yourself the weekend. Let's talk about it. So, you know, so we did that. My boss at the time was great. Uh, he was very supportive. He actually set me up as like Awea was my first client. They still are to this day. They've been a nonstop client. Another friend, if anybody's read the book, I highly recommend the book Superpower by Russell Gold, the Wall Street Journal energy reporter. Uh, Michael Skelly is the protagonist and subject of the book. Uh, Skelly is a good friend of mine. And the book is about his sort of, you know, the difficulties of trying to build large scale transmission. Uh, Clean Line was the company. Uh, and they, um, at the time the book ends, you know, none of the lines had been built and they all had various troubles. Turns out he later sold some and some of them are moving forward now. But at any rate, Skelly is a friend and he was my other sort of first client. So I had enough clients to kind of get going. And, uh, you know, there were a couple of reasons. One was the, the election, just because, you know, every, like everybody, we had sort of a whole bunch of policy plans and programs we were going to do if Hillary won the election. She did not. 
nobody really had a clue. We all had a blank sheet of paper on what we were going to do in a Trump administration because who the hell could tell? So, you know, I was just like, well, if I'm ever going to do it now, it's like, I, I just really don't want to sit here and, you know, defend renewable energy against this administration when really there's a lot of interesting grid work that is going to happen during this time. And I'm a little bit too ADHD to just kind of sit here and wait for more opportunities or to defend what we've done. I want to go, you know, drive something new and innovative in the transmission space. So that's what I did. Yeah. Well, welcome to the club. Or I should say I'm joining the club of ADD. I've uh, been there for a long time. It's a good club to be. Um, <laughs> do, I guess, what could you do at Grid Strategies that you couldn't do at OEA? And as a follow-up, I mean, two of the questions that I want to ask is, is renewable energy partisan? Because your history of Texas, Texas is not exactly a Hillary state, uh, to say the least, right? And then also, is it, can the grid, you talked about like the interstate highway version of the grid that we need, can it be solved piecemeal through state policies if it's a federally connected grid? All that is kind of what I'm chewing on. Love to hear what your thoughts are. Uh, yeah, there's a lot there. First of all, you know, renewable energy has benefited from bipartisan support from from our Republican support um, in different places. Um, and I, I worked that chairman I worked for, Pat Wood, was um, one of George W. Bush's longest serving appointees, both in Texas and then at the federal level. Uh, and, you know, he was part of that. They were part of that sort of political alliance, um, interesting alliance, strange bedfellows. Actually, Carl Rove was right in the middle of putting that together in Texas, ironically. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of rural landowners, not just Texas, but all over the country who really like the economic development. They like the property tax base that generation projects bring and transmission that comes with them. And um, uh, they don't maybe some of them care, but many of them don't care about the climate benefits. They're just looking for you know jobs and economic development. So uh, that's always been the case, uh, certainly with the wind industry and more broadly, uh, solar and renewables and also transmission. Uh, so, you know, it's always been the groups I've been part of, including AWEA, which is uh, now called the American Clean Power Association, brought in solar and storage uh, and transmission, as well as just uh, wind. But, you know, they've always tried to sort of be, be bipartisan in, in everything they do. So it's um, a lot of us here in the Washington area are sort of used to carrying a little bit of a different message to one side of the aisle than the other. But, uh, you know, there's, there has been support. It's, it's frustrating to everybody now that everything's so partisan and, and it's, uh, in fact, I have, um, here's my partisan story from my transmission, uh, through my transmission lens. So yeah, again, I, I was involved with, uh, you know, the kind of the Bush crowd at FERC and DOE, uh, on transmission policy, and they were really leading the agenda on transmission policy. There was some legislation and various policies around 2005, and I was, you know, I was a junior member of the, of the team, but along for the ride. And then, you know, fast forward now to 2020, 2022, there's not a peep coming out of any Republican on transmission, but now the Democrats, uh, most significantly led by, there was a uh, Nancy Pelosi set up this House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, led by Kathy Castor, of a representative from Florida. Uh, and transmission's all over that report. You know, it's all about what do we need to do? What are all the policies? What's the infrastructure? And transmission's all over that report. And that, very, along with other efforts in Congress, have really solidified Democrats' solid support for transmission. House, Senate, White House, all of them, but 
President Biden, certainly he was there already, but it's all through the Democratic side here in Washington now. So it's I was invited to testify once a few years back by the Republican majority when they controlled the House on transmission. And then two years later, I was invited back by the Democrats when they controlled the majority to speak about transmission. And I, I said, I said, you know, I looked at the Republicans in the eye and I said, look, I'm sorry to disappoint, but I'm going to say the same <laughs> thing today that I said two years ago. Uh, oh and it, it was, you know, they all kind of got the joke, but they were still too timid to ask me a question because I was viewed by the Republicans the second time as an unfriendly witness. They didn't want to give me a chance to, you know, say anything negative to their agenda uh, where you know, the, the opposite had been the case two years prior. So it's just like there's not even a conversation with, you know, the other side's witness. Now, there's not rational conversation going on. They're just everything is partisan. But, you know, transmission is one of those things that really should not be. And, you know, and we can show from the last couple of decades that, it you know, it's been supported by both sides. So hopefully we get to that. And at the state level, sometimes that plays out more and, and better than at the federal level. We're kind of stuck here at the federal level on partisanship. You also asked about, um, you know, can we do this state by state? Um, we can do a lot of renewable energy and clean energy uh, advancements state by state. There's a lot of policies at the state level, like renewable portfolio standards that uh, have made a, a great difference um, and various other clean energy policies. Uh, and I expect that will continue to be the case because we're not, um, you know, we don't have any super clear national policy yet at the federal level. Um, but transmission, as you kind of imply, is very hard to do state by state. And we really do need more federal involvement. Now, hopefully uh, states will see the benefit and get engaged and be a constructive part of their regional processes with other states. And that's the process that uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is setting up. They have a joint federal state task force to try to work with states. And in my experience, you know, some of those examples of building transmission in the Midwest that was done in close partnership with the states uh, there. So, um, I mean, sometimes legally it has to be, you know, either state or federal jurisdiction, you can't really have shared when you're talking about at the end of the day, somebody's got to decide, but more as a political stakeholder matter, there are ways to essentially have the feds and the states involved and, and uh, get their preferences uh, into, the, uh, into the transmission plans. We'll be right back after a quick break. Season three of the Net Zero Life is powered by Climate People. Climate People is a technology recruiting firm dedicated to decarbonizing the economy through placing mission-driven talent into climate tech careers. We focus on data, software, product, and user experience recruitment across all climate sectors. Whether you're a job seeker looking to use your skills for good or a hiring manager looking to build out your team of mission-driven engineers, Climate People can take care of your talent acquisition needs so you can focus on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions. I've been thinking a lot about us, like, uh, what does a net zero life mean? And an example of that is, like, I can put, like, solar, I can put rooftop on my solar. But that, similar to crypto, that's kind of, like, decentralized finance, right? And so it's also a little bit regressive in the sense that, like, if I have the ability to pay $20,000 to put rooftop 
versus if I put that $20,000 to either state, local municipality, or even federal level level um, policy advocacy, then I'm affecting everything. I'm not just affecting my household. I potentially affect my, my you know county, state, and federal. So do you think about, um, or do you have any thoughts in terms of where should people be putting their either dollars or time in terms of getting clean energy faster? Yes, a lot of thoughts, and it's a great question, the, the individual versus society. Uh, first of all, those with the means absolutely should do solar on the rooftop and you know, do whatever you can uh, locally. But I think it's really important for people to you know, support public policies and utility policies that do clean energy on a larger scale, you know, a larger scale than any individual can can do. Um, we just don't have enough resource base at enough houses, apartment buildings, et cetera, for the district to rely, uh, you know, a majority of our energy on, on local supply, local distributed supply. I mean, it's, it would, it would be nice. Everybody would love to be disconnected and be off grid it just for the, we'd love to not have to deal with utilities and things like that, but it just doesn't work. I mean, it, it's just not scalable because we're trying to decarbonize the entire country. And if you want to decarbonize the entire country and do it, not just among the, let's say 20% of the population that are gung ho to do a lot of this and listen to your podcast, I assume you get 20% of the country. I'm giving you. Yeah. That. You know, it but, depends on the week. Sometimes it's 25%. Yeah. 60 million people. Or so. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, but you know, it's gotta be the 350 or whatever million people. We got to have a system that applies to everybody. And, you know, the, the cost, it's about a tenth the cost to get the renewable generation out in these rural areas, right, than compared to on your rooftop. Um, now, you add transmission and the difference narrows somewhat. But, uh, you know, if we want to scale, most of it is really going to be the large-scale um, large projects and large-scale transmission and uh, so, you know, we just we just have to kind of work on work on both. But I I, uh, I I do get a little worked up when I see, you know, everybody saying, well, we don't have to do transmission anymore because we're going to be doing it all on our rooftop. And I'm like, look, I maxed out at my house. I, I have a lead gold house. I get about 10 percent of my electricity from my solar and that's all I can get. I got trees and I, you know, I'm not going to cut my trees down because um, they're shading and providing efficiency and I like them. <laughs> and so do sort of the birds. Um, and, you know, most houses just don't have that opportunity to do that much local renewable. Yeah. Which is a perfect segue into land use change and transmission. But I want to, I just want to touch on crypto for a second because I feel like it's such an interesting parallel based off of what you said, I would imply that you believe in a centrally like monetary policy but that's like assuming a perfect parallel. Um, I, not that we have to get into it, but I'm more curious actually in terms of like crypto and energy usage uh, and if you have any thoughts on that. And then we'll talk about land use change and transmission. Yeah, well, I mean, I think like most people, I kind of like the decentralized nature of crypto uh, also where you can, you know, you don't have to rely on a government and policymakers to mess around with it. Um, but, uh, you know, I should probably state my bias. I mean, my, my father was a Federal Reserve governor. So, like, <laughs> wow. you know, it's not like I'm an anti-Fed or monetary <laughs> policy person, really. But, you know, here's the real thing with crypto, as you're suggesting. Crypto uses massive amounts of energy, and it's horrible. 
I mean, all the coal plants we've closed in recent years, which is a lot in the United States, is easily overcome by all the crypto mining going on. And, and not just here, but all over. I mean, there are countries, uh, I, I forget which, uh, in Eastern Europe that are just doing massive crypto mining on coal power based systems. And it's just, it's an environmental disaster. So I'm very anti crypto for that reason. Okay. I'm going to, you know, FYI, we're going to blab broadcast this to 25% of the uh, United States population. So you might get some feedback from the <laughs> from Twitter. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, awesome. Do you, which is interesting, right? Because I think it, Team Crypto might also be Team Community Solar, Team Rooftop Solar, and there's just kind of a fun parallel there. But let's talk about um, land use chains and transmission, right? You mentioned for your, for your personal home, right? You don't want to cut down the trees and stuff like that. Do you do you think about that at all in terms of? Oh know, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and maybe just for people who aren't as familiar with the terms, kind of walking through what that looks like. Yeah, uh, there are a lot of ways to do transmission lines. I do think we're going to need new lines, uh, but we also have massive opportunities to expand capacity utilization of existing corridors uh, called rights of way. Utilities have these rights of way. They've kind of owned and controlled them for years. There are many opportunities to replace the old lines with new lines. There are advanced conductors that can be deployed on those lines, on those rights of way, I should say. Sometimes the, leave the same towers up and replace the, the wire. Other times replace the whole thing uh, with the wires and the towers. Um, we also have new corridor opportunities. Um, you know, For example, the Biden administration, one of its uh, planks in its energy policy or infrastructure policy is used existing corridors to the maximum extent possible. So highways and railways, uh, there's a line being developed in the upper Midwest that is an underground high voltage DC line along a railway. And turns out the railway uh, company is thrilled to have it. They're actually, most rail companies are actually losing their main source of business, which has been coal power, coal deliveries. And so the railway is like, well, I've got this rights of way, right of way here, and uh, you'll pay me a lease payment to, you know, put your line, you know, dig it in four feet deep under along the railway and nobody will ever see it. It's not a safety issue. Um, you know, sure. Come, you know, come on, bring, you know, y'all come. Uh, so that's happening. I, you know, it's hard. These are all new, so it's hard to say exactly how much we can do. Highways, uh, the, the Biden administration announced that it's going to be doing more work with the Department of Transportation to make sure state departments of transportation allow transmission along highways. There's a great line that when I when I drive to my uh, relative's place in uh, my mother's place in northern Wisconsin, uh, there's a line along I-94 there that is built in recent years. It's bringing a ton of wind power from Minnesota and the Dakotas into Chicago. Uh, and it's, you know, it's like, I don't know, Lady Bird Johnson, if she saw it, she might say, why is that there? But I would say, well, climate crisis, it didn't exist in the 70s. But, you know, um, sorry, this is actually already disturbed land. We're not cutting down any trees. Um, so we're going to use this land for this type of purpose. So I think there's a lot of opportunities to do that. And then, you know, it's also a big country. Those 15 states in the middle of the country with all the 90% of the resource base, there's actually plenty of land for, for transmission lines and it doesn't really disturb much. So, um, you know, there are a lot of places where you can do good old traditional overhead line, land, uh, lines across either public or private land. Okay. 
let's jump into the little bit more of the open-ended type questions because um, I-, I knew we were going to run out of time, but which is great. Uh, we could talk about all of this all day. I want to get your thoughts on moving away from the grid and more to clean energy. And then we'll talk about kind of like who kind of your superheroes um, have been uh, throughout your career. But if in a world where all of the new additions to the grid are clean, which some some people argue that's the where we are today, are the current policies and market mechanisms fast enough or do we have to start overhauling everything? And, and the example I like to give is like, if you are a person who bought like a 2019 Subaru Forester for like $30,000 this year and you live in the Pacific Northwest and you're super proud of it, right? It's a ga- it's an internal combustion car, right? And so there could, there's a world where people say, hey, we need to close natural gas plants, right? And those are relatively new. So that's is that the same world where we go to those people in 2019, like, you know, or, or who bought the used car that was like 30% more expensive and say, hey, I know you love your Subaru and you're really proud and you have awesome bumper stickers, but like, sorry, you're going to have to buy an electric car. Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great question. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, I have a, I have a gas powered minivan. Uh, we also have a Chevy Bolt and we, you know, we try to do all of our driving on the Chevy Bolt, but every once in a while we need a second car or we need to take, you know, the kids and their friends to the soccer game. So we pile in the minivan. Um, and that's kind of what we're doing in the electric industry. There are a lot of gas plants, like I forget 300 gigawatts, almost, I don't know, a third or 40% or more of the of the generation capacity in the country are gas plants built in the last say 20 years. Um, and, and a lot of them just very recently with, uh, you know, the advent of shale gas and fracking. Uh, and, you know, they're obviously much cleaner than coal and they've been serving to help uh, a lot in the displacement of coal and closing down coal plants. Um, but, you know, uh, do we really need to keep building gas, more gas plants and what are we going to do about all these recent ones? Um, I think what you do is you, you try to do what I'm doing with my minivan, which is you, you leave it sit most of the time. Uh, you have it there for backup because it's true. The wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine and you do need a firm backup source. And we're doing research on long duration batteries, um, but we don't have them yet. So, um, you know, having them as part of a system for a while, we can close the, close the coal plants tomorrow. We have to, um, uh, but, you know, a lot of the gas plants, I think, will keep operating in that type of backup capacity. In a world where we've fully decarbonized the grid, we've doubled its capacities, there's no barriers anymore. What are you doing with your time? Oh, I quit then. I'm done. Yeah. yeah. I, I joke with my kids, you know, when I'm working on the weekend or whatever on, on something, they're like, Dad, what are you doing? I'm like, I haven't fixed the grid yet. So as soon as I fix it, I'm done. Okay. So you, so then given that, if uh, how long do you think you'll be working for? Oh, I don't know. The reality is I'm going to work till I die. I'm sure like my <laughs> father and my father-in-law did because I love my work. So I'm, I'm sure we won't be done or if we're not, or if we're done here, there's a whole lot of countries in the world and the, the issues, the physics and the economics are almost the same. And a lot of the regulatory policies are even the same in all countries. So I'm going to be doing, uh, you know, probably uh probably take 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 it take it elsewhere if we finish up here yeah oh man we didn't have time to cover your sabbatical year but if you do um keeping it a little bit less open-ended do you who who which country or which region of the world will be the first to have a fully decarbonized grid that meets the capacity needs of an electrified everything world oh that's a good question well um 
you know, they're making a lot of progress in sort of Northern Europe and it is nice to have a hydro based system to do the balancing. So, um, you know, they've got a lot of hundred percent clean targets around, um, around Northern Europe. So they're, they'll be good. There's, you know, some Central American and other countries that, you know, are just kind of have always been very low carbon, probably usually for hydro. Um, see what happens with, uh, with nuclear, maybe the small modular reactors come in and that can help a lot of places. Um, but really I think most countries, not all, but most have a lot of opportunity for wind and solar. And they'll have to do some transmission. So I think, you know, I think, I don't know, 80% or like most countries have a similar path of decarbonize the power sector, probably more and faster than other sectors, uh, and then electrify transportation. So now you're powering, you're getting off of gasoline and you're um, using that clean electricity from the power sector to power your mobility. Uh, and then also heating and cooling and, you know, other things, electrify uh, other sectors electrify everything and you know, that's all sort of built on the foundation of a, a, a wind and solar based power system are you you brought up nuclear well, was one of my questions as well are you um kind of like team nuclear or not necessarily pro or con but is it going to be kind of sounds like it's going to be a smaller part if you were a betting person well it's very expensive now for new nuclear so that's the problem i'm not i mean i i i used to be sort of mildly anti-nuclear, I used to kind of point out how, look, you got to, you got to, you know, take the time between when we live and when Plato lived, multiply that time by four. And that's how long you got to keep this waste safe. That's really hard to do. <laughs> yeah. So that was my attitude about nuclear for a long time. Then it's like, well, climate crisis and well, like, geez, I, you know, look, we've had these plants operating for 30, 40 years. Maybe we should keep them going. So I do think we should keep the old nuclear plants going while we got a climate crisis on our hands. Uh, and then if we can get smaller, you know, modular nuclear reactors, especially if they're flexible, they can kind of ramp up and down to help balance against wind and solar, then that'd be a nice piece of the power system to add. Who, uh, when you think of a sustainability superhero, and it could be like a person, it could be an organization, who comes to mind? Oh, boy. Um, well, I am kind of a uh, policy wonk. So, um, you know, I, I've definitely been interested in the policymakers over the years who sort of went out on a limb early on, on climate. I mean, you know, I, I would watch Al Gore in hearings 30 years ago. I don't know, a long time ago. Um, and uh, people like that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, we need we need leaders that that uh, you know can connect with the diversity of this country. It's hard to find any of these days that that really do and that can um, push forward. I'm not a I'm not a technologist like a, like a lot of people. It's not my uh, core area. And I, I also think there's there's um, uh, there's a lot that can be done with sound public policy. I kind of, I really, I mean, I, I lived through, you know, we ha we started with acid rain at the beginning of this. We solved acid rain largely. We did tradable permits for sulfur dioxide. And it's a super wonky thing, but, you know, there were economists who kind of went to Congress and say, hey, here's a much more efficient way to do it. And they put it into law and they did it and we solved the problem. We had an ozone hole problem also, and we had regulations, the Montreal Protocol. So, um, 
you know, there were different people who were involved in that, but I, I look at those as, as examples that give me hope anyway, of how we can do this. If we get sound public policies that, uh, you know, they don't have to upend our, our, you know, our whole basically capitalist system and whatever kind of democracy we call this, but, you know, can, can just get the job done and people can work on, on, on other things in parallel, but let's just get the job done with efficient policy tools. Are there any nonprofits that you recommend for, and it could be not even, it could be not US-based, it could be world-based, but for helping people, if they want to contribute their dollars to helping get to zero carbon energy faster? Well, a lot of the environmental groups have had, uh, I think, good climate programs for uh, you know a number of years and they're, they're working hard. Uh, so those are certainly uh, possibilities. I mean, the, the standard group is kind of NRDC, Sierra Club, Union of Concerned Scientists, um, EDF. Um, so they're all working on this stuff. Um, you know, the only challenge with uh, some of these things is with our partisan society, some people get listened to and other people get, get ignored and it's hard to find, um, uh, you know, groups that will be able to reach across um, work with both sides of the aisle. That's kind of in the policy realm, but, um, you know, in the more local area, um, you know, if communities are doing community solar, like that's a, that's a nice sort of close to home opportunity, I would think for people. Great. Rob, thank you so much. I've had a great time. All right. Likewise, Nathan. Thank you. Thanks again to Rob for joining the show today. You can find Rob via his website, gridstrategiesllc.com, and they have a contact page. You can get in touch there. If you want to get in touch with me and the Net Zero Life team, you can do so by following all of our social medias at the Net Zero Life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at the Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion. It is in no way reflective of my employer. It's also not meant as investment advice. This episode was produced by Tony Levitt. The original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life. <laughs>